There's a common stereotype about husbands that maybe you experienced over the course of Thanksgiving weekend. I call it male refrigerator blindness, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It describes the fact that husbands can't seem to find things that are right in front of their faces in the refrigerator and resort to asking their wife, honey, where is the fill in the blank? Maybe it was the turkey, and she said, it's the big bird staring you right in the face. And some stereotypes I've found to be really true and deserved, and in my experience, this is, this is one of them. I've done this many times. And when Andrew and I were first married, I tried to hide it by standing in front of the refrigerator like this guy and just looking myself until I could find it. And now that we've been married a while, I no longer care if she thinks I'm stupid because she already knows I'm blind to what's in the refrigerator. And so I just ask right away. I figure I may as well save myself the time. Sweetheart, where's the barbecue sauce? Where is my hot sauce? And she's able to tell me. It's like she has a map in her mind of the refrigerator. And it's funny that we can sometimes forget things that are so obvious, or at least they should be, like where the sour cream is at in the fridge, or maybe the name of the person that you met in the lobby this morning. But unless something is repeated, Over and over, people seem to have a hard time remembering things, even important things, like someone's name or where they parked their car or their anniversary. We can be very forgetful people. And sometimes that forgetfulness isn't just a matter of memory as much as it is a matter of spiritual identity, of who we are. I mean, what if you forgot who you are? You've probably seen movie plots that are like this, that they, they played out on a television show, that read it in a book, that someone hit their head, and they woke up and they couldn't remember their name or where they came from or anything else, and they had to try to rediscover who they are. And sometimes our flesh or the pressures of our world or our work or our job or our, the spiritual enemy, the, the devil, tempts us to forget who we are. Psalm chapter 106 accuses Israel of forgetting God and what he had done for them. It says, they forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham. And that's not like Thanksgiving Ham. That's like a a man who was named Ham. And awesome deeds by the Red Sea. We need to have a solid understanding of who we are and of our identity in Christ and frequent reminders of it so that we don't fall into a similar error as they did and forget what God has done. Last week, we learned about the doctrine of our salvation, of how to be right with God through faith in Jesus. And we saw that faith is much more than just a belief in our heads about something that happened, but is actually a participation in something, trusting someone and participating in what he's done, what Jesus has done for us. As the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus commanded us to be participants in a couple of things that we're supposed to regularly do together that symbolize our relationship with him and with one another, with his church. And we call these things the ordinances of the church. An ordinance you may be familiar with is a command or a law, and we refer to these things this way because they are two symbolic acts in which Jesus commanded every believer to participate. And they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism 
is to be done once at the beginning or near the beginning of a believer's new life in Christ, but we're to participate in the Lord's Supper over and over again on a regular basis. And you can think of this a bit like marriage. You only have one wedding with all of its symbolism, with all of the celebration that it is involved. You do it one time, but you remember your marriage over and over again when you celebrate your anniversary. So it is with baptism and the Lord's Supper. These acts remind us and they secure us in our identity in Christ and every Christian is commanded to participate in them. And so I wanna consider this morning with you the significance of water baptism and holy communion as we look at this this fundamental truth that we're discovering today, the ordinances that Christ left to us, we see that you should participate in Christ and his body through the ordinances. And first is water baptism. And through this ordinance, you can announce that you are in Christ. The doctrine of baptism in water states this, the ordinance of baptism by immersion is commanded by the scriptures. All who repent and believe on Christ as Savior and Lord are to be baptized. Thus, they declare to the world that they have died with Christ and that they have also risen with him to walk in newness of life. What's the big deal with baptism? Why does it matter? It's been the subject of a lot of debate throughout church history. When should a person be baptized? How should baptism be conducted? Should we dip? Should we pour? Should we sprinkle? Should we dunk? What's the right way? And some people don't think we ought to get hung up on these kinds of questions. It's not a big deal. They think they're just technicalities that divide people rather than unite. And while it's possible for Christians to have differing opinions about how baptism should be done and we could still have fellowship with one another, I believe it does matter how we conduct water baptism, both because I believe there's a way the Bible describes it and how we ought to do it, and because the way we conduct baptism also teaches something about what we believe about salvation. We practice at Bethany believer's baptism, And that means we won't baptize someone unless they have confessed faith in Christ and have begun to follow Jesus. And as a result, we don't baptize babies. We don't baptize children who are too young to understand or profess genuine faith in Christ. And we try to ensure that the people that we baptize are sincere in their desire to actually follow Jesus. Now, if you grew up Catholic or Orthodox or Episcopalian or Lutheran or Presbyterian, you may be used to infant baptism and wonder why we don't practice it. We don't practice it because we believe that baptism is something that symbolizes your faith in Christ, not that conveys salvation to you. That is, we don't believe that you can be saved by being baptized in a merely external act. We don't believe that an unknowing or insincere person can be saved simply because they were sprinkled or dipped. That includes infants. Salvation requires faith. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And as we saw last week, in order to be saved, a person must repent and believe the gospel. An infant who can't yet speak, let alone understand the gospel, cannot respond to the gospel in faith. 
Now, this doesn't mean that babies are condemned if they die before they're old enough to to confess faith or even before they're old enough to, to sin. What it means is that when they are old enough, they will be accountable to God for how they respond to him and how they respond to the good news of Jesus. And being baptized prior to that doesn't alleviate their responsibility to God once they can hear the gospel and understand it. And I believe that this is the danger of infant baptism. It conveys the idea that a person can be saved without faith in Christ. We could also note that it has contributed to the apathy of many people who thought that because they were baptized when they were a baby and they went through some other things as a child, rituals that maybe they didn't have any understanding of or real connection to in the present, they have no ongoing need, they think, to trust Christ to follow Jesus with their lives, to be obedient to God's word, to grow in maturity in Christ. Now, I'm not claiming that this is the intent of those who practice infant baptism. Often it is not, but it has often been the outcome of the practice. The ultimate question is, do acts like baptism or communion, do they actually give us grace from God or do they symbolize the grace of God that has already been given? Are you saved by being baptized or are you saved by repentance and faith and then get baptized as a proclamation of what God has already done in your life? We believe the Bible teaches the latter. You believe in Jesus and then you are baptized. Baptism then is symbolic of the salvation God has brought into your life by faith in Christ. However, we wanna be careful with the word symbolic. You may hear that and think it's unimportant or it's optional, but that's not the intent either. Baptism is not optional for believers. Jesus and the apostles both commanded that believers should be baptized. There's no hint in the New Testament anywhere of a believer who was not baptized. This is because baptism is the way we identify with Christ publicly. Romans 6, one through four says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now in Romans 6, we find the imagery of baptism used to describe salvation. When you're put under the water, it symbolizes that you have died with Jesus. When you come up out of the water, it illustrates that you have new life in Christ. And this is also part of the reason for how we baptize people. Perhaps you've seen this video. I've got a little clip of a video that um, I think it's circulated the internet a few times. If we can show that, it's of a Orthodox baptism in the country of Georgia. Look at that! Look at that expression. This is the most exciting form of baptism I can think of. I, I am not able. To lift, since we believe in believer's baptism and, and that means you're gonna be larger, I'm not able to lift you up, by the way. So in the renovation, we're gonna install a hydraulic arm that we strap you in and I'm just joking. A little levity, okay, a little humor. We're not going to do that. I just wanted to re-engage your attention. While there may be times 
or extenuating circumstances like age or illness that would prevent someone from being immersed in water. And in those cases, I believe that other arrangements can be made. The normal mode of baptism is immersion, being put fully under the water and then coming up. And this is confirmed not only by the imagery that we read from Romans chapter six, but by the Greek word baptizo, which typically meant immerse, as well as by archeology span that reveals that the baptism fonts that the Jews used for their ritual cleansing were deep enough and big enough for people to actually get into and immerse themselves in, and these are likely the same vessels or the same places that early Christians often used if they didn't have a body of water like a river nearby. Now, maybe you've repented and you've believed in Jesus, but you've never been baptized. Perhaps you were baptized as an infant and you've since come to personal faith in Christ. You've been born again, but you've not been baptized since then. It could be that you're hesitant about baptism. Some people are anxious because of the water or they're anxious because it's a very public act. And I wanna encourage you, if you've not been baptized, to be baptized. In fact, this is a command from scripture. It's a matter of obedience. The Christian life is not just internal, but it is a walk of obedience with Christ. In fact, I believe the Bible demonstrates that baptism is to be done early on in the life of a believer. When, when Paul, one instance of this is when Paul was in the city of Philippi and uh, he was set free from prison and he witnessed to the Philippian jailer immediately after he had come to faith in Christ, Acts 16.33 says he was baptized at once or immediately. And this is a first step of obedience in the life of a believer. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. What better way to begin doing this than by being baptized? by following Jesus in a simple act of obedience that he has commanded all believers to follow him in. In an act that conveys, I have died with Christ and yet now I live in him. And that's another reason for Jesus' command that we should all be baptized. Because following Jesus is not something we should do only internally. It's not something that we only do privately or behind closed doors. Baptism is an announcement to others that I am with Christ. I am in Christ. Infant baptisms have become more about the celebration of a birth than they have been about a celebration of a new birth. How could they be a celebration of a new birth? Because that infant has not been born again by faith in Christ. Families that rarely attend church and don't actively honor Jesus in their lives will take their child to be baptized and then they throw a party. But that party is not about new life in Jesus. Believer's baptism, on the other hand, is a public confession that you've been born again and that your identity is in Christ. More than that, it's a confession that you belong to a community of believers, to a body who have also made this confession. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It teaches us that the Holy Spirit has baptized all of us into the body of Christ. That is, into the church. It says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Baptism in water symbolizes that we are part of that body. We've taken on ourselves the same symbol that all of the other believers have also taken into their lives. It signals to the church that we are part of that fellowship, that we should be held accountable, and that we will honor Christ with them and among them. 
And hopefully, baptism is a significant moment that is embedded in our memories. And like you can look back on maybe a graduation day, you can look back on your wedding day or other significant life-changing events that have happened, baptism should be celebrated as a day that marks us as believers in Jesus forever. You are now in Christ. You've declared that. You've declared publicly, I've died to sin. And this means that you follow Christ and you no longer live as a slave to sin like you once did. If you're a baptized believer, the message for you today concerning baptism is to remember that you are a baptized believer. You've died with Christ and you've been raised with him. Sin is no longer your master. You now live by faith in Christ. I want to ask you simply today, if you're a baptized believer, you've made this statement, this confession before people, maybe in this church, maybe in this tank, maybe in another church previous to coming here, but you've made this declaration of faith, and through baptism, you've declared, I died with Christ, and I now live in Christ. Let me just ask you simply, is your life in Christ? Are you living in Christ? Are you living your life in a way that demonstrates, I depend on Jesus daily? Are you living your life in such a way that says, I die to self and to sin daily, and I walk in Christ by faith daily? Or is your life little changed? Maybe you've forgotten what it means to be in Christ, and you no longer think in those terms that my life is bound up with Jesus. My hope is not in this world. My hope is not in the things or the possessions of this world, but my hope is in Christ. Maybe you've forgotten that. I would encourage you today, believer, if you've been baptized, remember that significant moment and the symbolism of it, that it is a symbol of what has really happened in your life, that you have been saved, you have been born again and you are now to walk in a newness of life is your life a demonstration of newness of what it means to live in Jesus maybe you need to reflect on your baptism and its significance remembering that you weren't baptized in some kind of ritualistic ceremony but you were baptized as a confession of your faith in Christ if you've died to sin how can you still walk in it if you're an unbaptized believer or you were baptized as an infant prior to being born again through faith in Christ, the application for you today is be baptized. Follow the example and command of Christ. Don't make excuses for why it's unimportant. It is important. It's a matter of your core identity and a proclamation of who you are. Get baptized. Our next baptism class will happen on Sunday, uh, on the second Sunday of January, so don't wait. You can get an intention card at the hospitality counter to let us know you want to be baptized. I'd encourage you, be baptized as quickly as you can. If you have a real faith in Christ, a relationship with him, and you've not been baptized, follow him in obedience. Why would you not? I know that it can be scary, it can be intimidating, but listen, it's not as if Jesus, when you first come to Christ, called you and said, everyone who follows me must take a trip to some foreign continent and, and sell all their possessions and go there and live for eight years and be a missionary. He didn't say that, but he does want obedience from you in your life, doesn't he? He wants you to follow him. And so he gives you this action in which you can follow him and declare to others around you, I'm following Jesus, I'm with Jesus, I'm sticking with him, and it's baptism. If you can't follow him by being baptized in a church full of people who are gonna sing and clap and celebrate with you, 
How are you going to be obedient to him doing anything else in your life? If you, can't be, if you can't be bold in an environment where everybody's for you, how are you going to be bold for Jesus doing anything else? Believer, baptism is not optional. We may not say that it saves you as if it is the first act or a ritual act that even if you don't believe, it saves you. But we do not mean when we say that it's symbolic that it is unimportant. It is important. And if you're a believer who is unbaptized and you're here, it has now become an issue of clear obedience in your life. That if you do not get baptized, you're walking in disobedience to the clear command of Scripture that you ought to follow Jesus in this step. Believer, take a step of faith. Be baptized. It's what the scripture commands. And as you walk in obedience to Jesus, I believe that you will find that he will reveal himself to you in greater and greater ways as you're willing to walk in faithfulness and obedience to what he's already made clear in your life. The second ordinance is Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. And this doctrine states this, the Lord's Supper, consisting of the elements, bread, and the fruit of the vine, is the symbol expressing our sharing the divine nature of our Lord Jesus, a memorial of his suffering and death, and a prophecy of his second coming. And it is enjoined on all believers till he come. And while baptism does not need to be repeated, communion is something that believers are commanded to do regularly. As with baptism, some think of communion as a ritual that contributes to their salvation rather than an act of remembrance. At Bethany, we don't believe this and that's why we practice what we call an open communion. We don't require that you are a member of this church in an official capacity or even that you are from the same denomination or something like that in order to receive communion when we have it. Instead, we teach that anyone who has confessed and believed in Jesus and is following Christ is welcome to participate, participate in communion. Now, I believe that it is best for anyone who takes communion to be a baptized believer in Jesus. If you've not followed Jesus' command to identify with him in baptism, why would you identify with him and his body through communion? And when we gather as a church to take communion, there are three points of reflection. Communion symbolizes or reflects on three things, the past, the present, and the future. It's a reminder of how Christ's death applies in these three different time zones, if you will. When we gather as a church to take communion, we are reflecting, obviously, on the death of, of Christ for our sin. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It draws us, when we take communion, back to the heartbeat of our faith, to Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ. As we've been learning about the nature of Christ in this series, we've seen that Jesus is fully God and he's also fully human. And the bread reminds us that Jesus was and is fully man. He went through life as we do. He knows the pains and the weaknesses of our flesh. He understands our trials and our tribulations, not because he has infinite knowledge only, but because he has gone through trials and tribulations himself as we do. He was tortured and his body torn open as we saw last week when he went to the cross for us. The bread is a reflection on Christ's nearness to us. And the cup represents his blood poured out, his death. 
As we saw again last week, Jesus' death was a propitiation for our sins. In other words, when he died, he bore our sin and he endured the wrath of God against my sin and your sin. And when we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus did. And what he did not only affects us in the past, but it also affects our present, doesn't it? Or at least it should. Through Christ, we've been made new. And as the doctrinal statement puts it, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Communion reminds us that Christ lives in us and that we live through him. Jesus said it this way in John 6, 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Communion then is a reminder that we presently live through Christ. What an important reminder this is for us because we too easily forget that our life is in Christ. We get caught up in the busyness of the week, the pressures of family or life or of our work, the temptations that we feel in our flesh and all the other distractions that constantly bombard us and we forget that we need to honor Christ in our lives. We forget that our lives are actually in Christ, that our life is found in him. Perhaps you fall into temptation. Maybe you fail to meditate on Christ and seek his wisdom in your decisions. Maybe your attitude or your character doesn't reflect Christ as fully as it should. And communion then is a reminder that Jesus is in you and that your life is in him, it comes from him, and it's an opportunity for repentance, forgiveness, and for growth in his grace. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight to 29 instructs us, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself. There are two ways that we examine ourselves when it comes to communion. Communion is an appropriate time for us to examine our lives and determine if we're walking with Christ as we should. As we hold those tangible elements of the bread and the cup and and we remember what he's done, it should cause us to reflect on whether we have been living a life worthy of the call of Christ. So if we are taking communion and you're convicted of something while you examine yourself, it's not a time for you to wallow in shame, but rather for repentance and thanksgiving that you're holding in your hand the representation that God has provided what is necessary for for forgiveness and has given you the life of Christ in order to strengthen you so that you can walk in Christ. Communion is a regular reminder that Christ is at work in you, not yesterday only, but also today, and that your life should be progressively taking on the character of Christ. And if it's not, then communion calls you to repentance and a renewed faith in Christ. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul tells us to examine ourselves before taking communion, he was also addressing a situation where there was division in the church in Corinth, between members of the church. And to sum it up, communion calls us to examine how we're loving our neighbor in Christ. Am I treating my brother or sister in Christ in a way that recognizes that they are part of Christ's body as well and honors them? Am I living selfishly without any concern for others? Am I harboring unforgiveness or bitterness or malice against someone? Communion then is a call to remember that Christ is at work in me and that faith is not ritualistic. This is not something that I do in order to gain salvation, but I do it to remember that I am saved and that Christ is active in me and at work. 
when I take communion, if I am proclaiming Christ's death and that his death is for me and that he's at work in me, do my actions proclaim the same thing? I should ask, my, I should ask whether my life declares that I'm in Christ as the act of communion I'm participating in declares. And if not, Communion presents me with an opportunity to recognize the grace of God, the mercy of God, to repent, to confess, and to be renewed in my faith. And then communion goes from past into our present and it moves to the future. Because when Jesus instituted communion, he told the apostles in Matthew 26, 29, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And his promise points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will celebrate the completion of God's plan of salvation as our eternity with him begins. Communion then looks forward to the completion of salvation, of what Jesus has done in our lives and and its eternal value, our eternal life in God's kingdom. And as such, it should remind us not only of the suffering of Christ, but also of the hope that we have in him, the hope that is not of this world, but a hope that is in his kingdom. And in this sense, communion is a bit like Christmas. Maybe you got your tree up this weekend, my family and I, we got our tree up and, and uh, we've got a couple of presents that have been put under the tree. Maybe you purchased some of those things and they've gone underneath the tree, maybe gifts for your kids or your grandkids, and they're going to, for the next month, look longingly at those gifts, aren't they? The gifts are already bought. You already paid for them. They are there. And while they don't know exactly what is inside, they're probably going to try to guess as they wait to open those gifts. And the gifts are evidence of your affection for them. Even if they don't know what's inside yet and haven't opened the gift, they're evidence right there in front of them, underneath the tree, that you love them, that you care about them, that you've thought about them. And every time they see those presents under the tree, they're reminded of the good time that awaits them on Christmas morning because of your love. And communion is similar. It is a reminder of a gift that has already been bought has already been paid for. And while we have salvation in Jesus, we don't yet know exactly what it will be like when Christ returns. We know we will be like Jesus and that God will complete the good work that he began in us. And so we look forward to that day with longing. We look forward to it with expectation and it fills us with joy and hope as we wait for the fulfillment of God's good promises to us. And it should also motivate us to live for Christ with perseverance and urgency. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of Christ's work. It's past effect, it's present effect in our lives, and it's future effects as well. And when we take communion, there should be a sense of solemnity because of the price Jesus paid and the confession of sin, as well as an air of joy and hope because Jesus is doing good things in us and he has promised good things to us in God's future kingdom. Communion then is like a gift you hold in your hand and you are reminded of that this gift has been received when you take that communion. You're reminded that God is at work in you through this gift of his son, but also that that gift is something that will be completed or fulfilled when he returns. It reminds you of forgiveness for your past, growth in Christ-likeness, and joy in the present, and of the future glory that awaits you when Christ returns. And when you take communion... Do you have the seriously joyful attitude that you should or has it become a kind of a ritual act for you? 
Maybe if you've come from a Catholic background, you, you might view communion as something that you must do in order to be saved, rather than as a reminder of your salvation and that Christ is currently at work in you. Maybe communion represents to you something that is more like an assurance or a, 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 an insurance policy that you believe that because you have taken communion that you're protected against some future event so that you can be in heaven one day. Rather than thinking, this symbolizes that Christ died for me, that he lives in me, that he's currently at work in me, and yes, that that work will one day be completed when he returns and I am with him in his kingdom. The next time that we take communion, know that it is not a way for you to be saved, but it is a reminder that God is working in your life and you should be careful to submit to his work. Any of us can grow callous to repeated actions. We can get so used to a particular schedule or so used to the way that we typically do something that it's always been done that way and we can take it for granted very easily and this happens sometimes with the Lord's Supper. And the next time we're together and we're taking communion, I encourage you to come with a heart, to, to, that, a heart that's ready to reflect on what Jesus has done, yes, but also a heart that's ready to say, Christ is in me and he's at work in me. Where have I seen him at work? If I'm not seeing him at work in me, is there some hindrance in my life that has prevented my hearing of his voice, that has prevented me from walking in obedience to him? Is there something in me that would hinder me from following actively in Christ's way because his Death was not just for yesterday, it is for today. And not only is it for today, but it is for the future. In as much as I believe that Christ will one day return and that that return gives me motive to honor him now, his past, present, and future work, be reminded when you hold those elements and you take them that God is at work in your life and that his work will continue into the day he completes it in Christ. Baptism and communion are memorials in a believer's life. And I'm sure at some point in your life you've been walking through a park or maybe you've been in a historic district of some town and you've come across a memorial. Maybe it was faded. Maybe it had become overgrown. Someone had not taken care of it. And if you could still make out what it said, it may not have meant much to you. In fact, you probably couldn't care less because you had no connection to that little memorial stone or whatever it was. You had no connection to it whatsoever. Maybe you've been with someone who likes to stop and read all of those stones and signs and all of the memorials. Anybody ever been with somebody like that and gotten frustrated that they have to stop and read everything? You're like, what does this have to do with me? I want to move on. I remember my dad when I was young, sorry dad, I'm telling on you. When we would go to the zoo, like we had to read every sign. Like, and now that's me and my kids are wanting to move on. And I'm, wow, this is so interesting, guys. And, and maybe it's like that with memorials. You've been somewhere and you've, you've been reading it and, and you're thinking, I don't know what this memorial, I, I don't, there's a date, there's a name, but it means little to me. And maybe you grew impatient with somebody who was reading it and you just wanted to move on. But there's someone for whom that memorial is very meaningful. Someone whose life was impacted by the person or the event that is memorialized by that monument. It's possible for baptism and communion to become a bit like that for us as, as believers. 
that it becomes like a memorial that is neglected and is overgrown. We go through the motions. We know it's the ritualistic, we know the, the ritualistic portion of it. We know what's supposed to be said and how it's supposed to be said and what the elements represent and we know how it's supposed to be done. But maybe you've lost all sense of purpose or meaning in that moment for what this really is. That's not what communion is supposed to be. It's not what baptism is supposed to be. Rather, these are living memorials because they don't merely communicate something that happened. They communicate something that is happening in us. Amen? They communicate God's ongoing work in our lives as Jesus moves us from glory to glory. They communicate that Jesus, as I take his bread, as I take the bread that represents his body and I take the cup that represents his blood, is in me and his death is at work in me and his life is also at work in me so that I can be like him, so that I can die to self and live to Jesus. It communicates Jesus is living and active and working in me and when we're tempted to forget what Christ has done or to live without the awareness of his presence, baptism, when we watch others being baptized, if we've already been baptized, or communion, should serve as anchors that remind us that the life we live, we live by faith in Jesus so that we do not forget that we live in Christ. The next time that there's a baptism service, I encourage you to remember how you've died with Christ and that your testimony is that you now live a new life in him. The next time that we take communion, rather than going through the motions with distracted thoughts and then moving on to the next portion of the service, I encourage you to remember all that Christ has done and what he's doing in your life and what he's going to do in the future. And if you do not know what Christ is doing in you, then communion is an opportunity for you to examine yourself and listen to the Holy Spirit as he may want to convict you of sin in your life, to bring change and repentance, to challenge you toward greater Christ-likeness. It's gonna be an opportunity for you to repent and grow in Christ. Also, don't take for granted the community element of the ordinances of baptism and communion. They're both to be done together. This is one really solid reason why when someone says they don't need the church or to go to church to be a Christian, they're wrong. You cannot baptize yourself and you cannot take communion by yourself, at least not according to any example we have from the New Testament. These things were always done in community. The scripture always describes these things being done together because they remind us that we're not just individuals pursuing Jesus, but that we're together pursuing Jesus. You should be in church. If, if you're watching online, we love that. We appreciate that. If you're from far away, praise God, you've tuned in. But if you're from near and you've never participated, I want to challenge you to take the step to be a part of the church, not by watching, but by being a participant in the body of Christ by coming. We want you to be here. We want you to be a part of what God is doing. And if you're not regularly a part of the church, you ought to be. Baptism and communion remind us that the Christian life is not something that should be or can be done alone. And it's not just that you should be in church You should be here and watch baptisms and take communion and you you could do that and you could still have little connection with anyone else. But both of these ordinances remind us that we are together in Christ, that we all participate in the same baptism into one body, Christ. And we all partake of the same communion and fellowship of that one body of Christ. Christ. 
This isn't just my journey in Jesus. It's our journey in Jesus. Are you sharing the journey with people around you? Are you being encouraged in faith and are you encouraging others in their faith? Baptism and communion call on us to rethink the individualistic tendencies we have concerning church and to understand that we are all baptized in one body and we all share the same table with the Lord. If you're not a believer in Jesus, today baptism and communion paint a picture for you of what believing in Christ means. It means death to yourself and to sin and it means new life in Christ. And today if you've come and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you've never confessed faith in Christ, today the best picture of that is baptism. If you've never seen a baptism by immersion, one of, one of the really cool highlights of the Christian life, maybe the highlight of the Christian life is baptism. And we practice baptism as I described by immersion and someone will come and they'll confess, confess faith in Christ. They say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me, that he died, and when he died, he did it for my sin, that his death covers my sin. And I believe not only that he died for me, but that when he died, I died in him. That I died to my sin, I died to my past, and I also believe that when Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, because the scripture says that on the third day, God raised him from the dead, that when God raised Jesus, I was raised up in him too. By faith, I believe that my life is no longer the old way that I used to live. I died to that sin and rebellion against God, and now I live a new life. I've been born again to a new and living hope. And when a person comes to be baptized, they said, I've confessed that, I believe that. And then they publicly portray it in an action where they are put under the water, symbolizing how they died with Christ, and they're pulled back up, symbolizing how Christ reaches into the grave and pulls us up out of our sin and our rebellion, and they are born again into a new and living hope. And today, if, if you haven't experienced that, the scripture makes it very plain that if you want to know God, if you want to have eternal life, life, if you want to, if you want to walk with Christ, if you want to know what real life is, the kind of life we talked about earlier where Jesus promises in John 10, 10 that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came to give life and to give it fully and abundantly. If you want to know what real life is, the scripture says that you don't do it because you just decided one day that you're going to believe something or, or, or you, you had an action happen to you that somebody else did to you when you were a child and, and you went through the rituals and so now you have some kind of ticket you hope to heaven with little assurance of what that really means that is not how you're saved the scripture says if you want to know God if you want to be in his kingdom you must be born again and that doesn't happen because someone did something to you in the past that you were unaware of until someone told you later on. It happens because you hear the gospel of Jesus, that he died for your sin and God raised him from the dead so that you could be redeemed and set free and forgiven and made right with God and you believe it and by faith you join Jesus in his death and resurrection. It means that you start a new life today, not living in the old way in which you used to run from God, but living in a new way where your heart has been made right with him if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus today and you want to know new life you will know the forgiveness of your sin you have believed in him you have heard today and you've believed and you want to know new birth then what I want to ask you to do today not because 
this saves you because this doesn't save you. A hand raised, a prayer prayed, that doesn't save you. Faith in Jesus saves you. And I want to help you express that faith. If you are believing in him sincerely today, I want to help you express that. So if we could just close our eyes for just a moment. If you don't have a relationship with God in Jesus and you want to begin that today, you'd say, Pastor Stephen, I need to know new life. My old life it has been unsatisfying. I've been searching for purpose. I've been searching for hope. Cannot find it. I need to know what it is to have the abundant kind of life that Jesus said. Maybe you'd say, I've got everything. I've got every external provision the world could think to offer, and yet I don't have life, and I want to know life, and you want to know that life in Jesus today. Or maybe you'd say, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in my sin. I'm stuck in my anger. I'm stuck in my my pettiness and bitterness. I'm stuck in in what I cannot control but continually try to. And you want to be delivered from that today. If you will put your faith in Jesus, he will rescue you. He will redeem you. He will deliver you. And he will give you new and real life. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you want to begin that today by faith in him, I want to help you express that faith if you'd let me. Would you just lift up your hand and say, Pastor Stephen, I want to pray with you. I want to pray that the Lord would make me new. I want to receive new birth today through faith in Christ. If you don't have that relationship with him, you don't know that you've been born again, and today you want to put your faith in Christ, would you just lift up your hand? Anybody like that? If you've joined us online and you'd like to, you'd like to give your life to Christ, would you just text the word HOPE to 413-360-61? We'll pray in just a moment and pray with you as well, but uh, we would love to be able to respond to you when we're done praying, as so if you just text that. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus and you want to express that faith in him today? We're going to pray. Again, this prayer doesn't save you. These are not special words. I just want to help you express faith in Christ. And as I pray, you pray. You pray and express your faith in Jesus. You ask for forgiveness. You confess that you need Jesus and the Lord will save you. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name today, we come to you. And Lord, you see those who are in need of your salvation. You see those who today have confessed belief in you. I pray, Lord, that today you'd minister in their lives. I ask, Lord, that as they have confessed that they do not, that they have been running from you and they are rebellious against you and they need your forgiveness. I ask, Lord, that you would come into their lives and assure them of that forgiveness. I pray that as they confess that you are Lord Jesus and that God raised you from the dead, I ask that you would help them to experience even now the new birth, the new life that comes from Christ. I ask that they would be changed today, never to go back, never to be the same again. I pray that they would recognize and realize this morning that they have been saved by your grace, that you have done what they could not do for themselves, and you have redeemed their lives and raised them up. And Lord, I pray that you would convince them fully today that you are now with them and are at work in them. Lord, I pray that today they would walk out a new creation in Christ, knowing that you have done it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. I mean, if you raised your hand or if you prayed that and, and you wish that you uh, would have raised your hand, before you go today, there are going to be some folks here at the front, uh, prayer partners, pastors, and uh, it, before you leave, would you come and speak with one of them? We want to help you understand what does it mean to put your trust in Christ? How do I continue to walk with him? Believer, let me ask you this. Do you know the presence of Christ in your own life and have the assurance that he's currently at work in you? This is what communion is a constant reminder to us about. And if you don't have that in your life, going through the motions next time we have communion isn't gonna bring any reassurance to you. 
But what can bring reassurance is as you lay down your your life to Christ, you surrender to him, you surrender perhaps the hindrances of sin or the distractions of the world, and you allow Christ through his Holy Spirit to begin speaking in your life once again, he can do that work in you. And so as we get ready to, to dismiss, the prayer partners, like I said, are going to be here, our pastors. If there's some sense of hindrance in your life or there's just not that assurance that Jesus is currently at work in me. For you, it's mostly about something that you did in the past when you first believed, but not something that you feel motivated to serve Jesus in today, that you know he's currently at work. Before you go, would you come and would you just let us pray with you? Listen, again, as we said last week, this is not the walk of shame when you come to to respond to a message. We're not looking down on people and judging them because, oh, they must have something really bad going on because they need prayer. No, we are rejoicing with you that you are allowing the Holy Spirit to speak in your life and work in you. So before you leave, would you just come and and receive prayer and, and, and give the Holy Spirit a moment of your life, a moment of your time before you move on to the next thing, to renew the work of Jesus in your heart, to assure you, What God did in your life is not just about yesterday, but it's also about today, and it's also about the future. That what he did in your life, he's still doing in your life. I'm gonna pray, and then our prayer partners, in fact, prayer partners, pastors, you can go ahead and come as I pray, and and if you you want prayer before you go, please come and, and, and pray with us. We would love that privilege. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the grace of God that you've put in our lives, and for the constant reminder that you make in us through communion and as we watch others be baptized that what you've done is not just for yesterday but that we've been born again to a new and living hope we thank you jesus that your work was not completed yesterday but you're still working in us today and i pray lord that where we lack that sense of your current work in our lives you would renew our hearts in that work today lord that you would remind us that you're presently working by your holy spirit and you would challenge us to be aware and and constantly thinking of how you're working submitted to your voice walking in obedience to you laying our lives before you even as you laid your life down for us we love you lord and we thank you for that thank you for the work you began thank you for the work you're doing thank you for the work you'll complete on the day of christ we love you we remember these things today and it's in the name of jesus we pray amen amen if you gave your christ or if you gave your life to Christ this morning, please come and pray with one of our prayer partners. If you would like to receive prayer, please come. Otherwise, go in God's grace. We'll see you again after second service when you help us carry in heavy objects to set up for our singing Christmas tree. Otherwise, go in God's grace and in his peace.